as we continue this journey through Advent, as we move towards uh, Christmas, we're each week lighting candles, and those candles are giving guidance and directions to the things that we're talking about that Sunday. So, for instance, last week was uh, the candle of hope, and this week is the candle of peace. Um, and so for the second Sunday in Advent, we want to talk a little bit about what it means when we light a candle of peace and what God is exactly calling us to. Because peace is one of those things that pretty much everybody hears and it's like, yeah, I, I vote for that. Like that, that's a really good thing, right? And it kind of is non-offensive. It cuts across countries and cultures and languages. And I mean, everyone hears peace. You know, you've seen probably movies like Miss Congeniality and it's like in the beauty pageants, like what's the one thing you wish for? It's like world peace. And everyone's like, oh yes, we all want world peace. Everybody agrees with that. You can't offend any judge by saying, what's your one wish? I would wish for world peace. Um, And so this candle burns, and probably a lot of us kind of hear that and see that, and we go, world peace, yeah, we're, we're good with that. A candle of peace, absolutely. And yet we live in a world where peace feels like a distant reality. We live in a world that even in some seasons feel like this, it feels like we're further away from it than we even normally are, at least to me right now. What we saw this week in San Bernardino, where our country continues to be unique in its struggles with the violence that we saw, in places like Paris, in places like Mali, in places like Beirut, we see and read about ISIS, when we see people fleeing Syria and saying that the unknown is safer and better than what they do know, when you see what's happening between Russia and Turkey, we feel the tension rising in our own political discourse as another campaign rolls around again. This candle makes you feel good. And yet, if you really think about, are we close to peace, it seems really, really, really far away. The good news is that we're looking at a scripture passage today that doesn't talk about peace in some sort of academic, ivory tower, theoretical, emotional, feel-good way. But it is a peace that we believe the kingdom is about and that you and I are called to be building and working for. So we're going to bring it up here today. It's a scripture passage that we talked about that started last week with um, uh, Whitney preached and did a really awesome job, by the way, on um, preaching on hope uh, here in this service. And we're continuing looking at Isaiah chapter 9, the opening verses. Uh, and this is verses 4 through 7. Listen to what it says. It says, For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling Warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
One of the dangers in the church is familiarity, and we become familiar with these ideas of Jesus being the Prince of Peace and the Everlasting Father, and of his reign there will know nor end. These are language that's familiar, but um, we shouldn't let familiarity make things um, ordinary that shouldn't be. Isaiah's writing these words 750 years before Jesus was born. I mean, it's amazing the prophecy that God gave him about one child who would be born, who would usher in an era and a day that would be totally different. And Isaiah is talking here in a time, just like a time that you and I can relate to, and probably even more imposing, when peace seemed like a very distant reality. Isaiah is writing at a time here, uh, about 750 years before Jesus, and the people of Israel were getting ready to be invaded by the Assyrians. This whole empire was coming, and it was about to take over. Uh, it was threatening every part of the way of life of the people of Israel. So there was great fear. There was great trepidation. There was worry. There was a question of where's God, and how is God allowing all this to happen? And in the midst of this very, very, very threatening, scary, difficult time, Isaiah is writing to the people about how there will come a day when a child will be born who will establish a reign of peace and the world will never see the end of that reign. Now, we need to understand that Isaiah is saying that this day will come. It is possible that peace isn't just some faraway dream, not just some feel-good idea, that this day is coming and we can have hope that this day will come about. But we need to be very clear about what Isaiah is talking about in this passage, that peace looks like and what this Prince of Peace is coming to introduce. You see, one of the things that we can think about when this candle is lit and we have this kind of feel-good moment of, of peace is that we think of peace in a kind of weak way like it's the absence of conflict, right? But peace is not the absence of conflict. Let me give you an example just to prove to you that this is true everyday stuff. Many of you have just had Thanksgiving breaks, Okay? Many of you have had times with extended family for Thanksgiving, and some of you already know where I'm going with this. <laughs> Many of us have Christmas coming up. Again, gathering time with extended family. And those can be, not for all of you, and I'm not talking about any of you who are sitting next to a relative right now and wondering if you, they talk to me. I'm not just, this is just generalities we're talking in here. Sometimes those can be somewhat tense gatherings, right? Because there's histories that have gone on and somebody said something or someone doesn't agree with a lifestyle someone's leading or a career or there's still a disappointment or whatever it is that's kind of gone on in our life and what's gone on in our history. And so when we gather together, there can be sometimes that feeling among families of extended families of like, all right, we just kind of got to get through this and we're smiling, right? And then someone makes a comment, that little comment at dinner and you sit there going, just smiling, just going through it, just, we're, we're leaving in an hour, and then we got 363 days till we're together again um, to have another full, wonderful time together as family. And you can bite your tongue, and you can make it through that gathering, and at the end you can go, okay, didn't, nothing, nothing bad happened, everybody got through it okay. Just because there's a lack of conflict does not mean there's peace. Do you know what I'm saying? Isaiah is not talking about this world peace in terms of like everyone will just get along and everything will be okay and we kind of just everybody bite their tongue and kind of smile and we're kind of living this Prince of Peace thing out. Isaiah is not talking just about a lack of conflict, but rather he talks about a peace that he equates with two different words, 
Two different words here that are incredibly significant in this passage of what peace is associated with. Isaiah says that a child will be born who will establish peace that will be based on number one, justice, and second, righteousness. He says that the era of the Prince of Peace that he'll usher in will be one where there is peace that comes through the presence of justice and righteousness. Now, whether we're talking on a macro level between countries or between you know, races or between people groups or gender, or, or we're talking on a micro level, just me and having peace with my, my friends or in my uh, family or in my marriage or with my children or with my parents, peace is going to come down to real lasting peace, comes down to the presence of justice and righteousness. Now, what do those words mean? What do they mean in terms of, uh, of peace? Well, righteousness means that things are in right alignment. Justice means that where there have been things that are off or wrong or were bad, that they are being brought back into a just state of being. This is active work we have to take where we have to look at places in our lives or places in our world where things aren't peaceful, where there is conflict, where there is hardship, where there is difficulty. And rather than just saying, sweep it under the rug and be peaceful, we're Christians, we're supposed to smile and be really, really nice, that it's about making things right, making things just again. It's the hard work of rolling up your sleeves. But if we'll do that work, Isaiah is saying, that real, lasting, genuine peace can come. Can come in our hearts, can come in our relationships, can come in our city, can come in our world. So I want to talk about what that means if we're supposed to be followers of Jesus, followers of this Prince of Peace how we do that. And what I believe personally is that at the core of making things just and right comes one of the most important and basic things that we have to do. And as followers of Jesus, we have to wrestle with it. And that is that we must be people who dwell in the land of forgiveness. That for things to be made right or made just that are broken, that we must be people who understand that forgiveness is going to have to be a major part of everything we're about. Because forgiveness is maybe the only way that we can take relationships and conflict, uh, either in a big scale or in a small scale, and actually make it right again. And there's really two different things that I want us to think about today. The first is how we need to be people who seek out and ask for forgiveness. And secondly, how we need to be people who are willing to give it and give it generously and authentically. What does it mean to be people who seek out and ask for forgiveness? And where are we called to be people who give forgiveness and offer forgiveness, whether someone asks for it or not? Okay? So the first thing is how are we a people who seek out places where we need to give forgiveness. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about in your mind, when we talk about peace and we see this candle burning, where is a place in your life where you would say, I do not have peace there? Maybe it's about what you're supposed to do in uh, a work situation. Maybe it's with a coworker. Maybe it's um, a situation in your neighborhood. Maybe it's here at church. Maybe it's uh, in your marriage. Maybe it's in a friendship. But just a situation or a relationship that you would look at and go, that is, it's not functioning right. Now, most of the time, we as people are really, really, really good at explaining how others are to blame 
for the problems that exist in our world. We're about to go through a political season and we're going to be inundated from all sides with how the other side is to blame for everything that could conceivably be wrong with the world. Okay, we are norm- But we're like that uh, in our relationships. You think about relationships where you have conflict. You think about that, that family dynamic I was talking about around the holidays. Those can be times where people are experts at what someone else has done wrong, right? Well, this is what he said, and this is what she did, and this is what they didn't do, and this is how they didn't treat me, and this is how they did wrong, and blah, 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 blah. We are normally experts at how other people are messing up situations. But one of the things that you and I as followers of Jesus need to do is to consider the fact that as one person told me recently that they're really, really excited about the new Star Wars movie coming out, but that life is not Star Wars, okay? And relationships and conflict are not Star Wars. And what we mean by that is that Star Wars is this world where there's really clear good guys and really clear bad guys, right? And everybody's really clear. No one saw Darth Vader and goes, oh, he seems like a really warm, fuzzy guy, right? Everything about him was menacing. And so there's this like good and bad, and there's right and there's wrong, and there's the clear ones we're calling for, and the clear ones, not not you guys, just I'm right here, whoever's mythic right here, these are, you know, who we're not calling for. And most of the time we treat conflict that way. It's like, well, you know, this is what they did and this is what they said and this is why they're wrong and this is why. But we need to consider the fact that in almost every conflict we're involved with, it's not a Star Wars situation. And that even if we, and not everything, but if in most things, we probably have something to do with the conflict in which we're involved. And so one of the things that we need to be able to do as people who are following the Prince of Peace is moving into different situations and in humility asking the question, I'm not taking all the responsibility for this maybe, but how am I contributing? What is it about me that's, that's, that's exacerbating this situation or causing the snowball to roll downhill faster and faster and faster? And what would it mean for me to be somebody who goes and asks for forgiveness for the things that I see I've done wrong. It's one of the reasons that these covenant groups are so important that we're getting started. Because the other part is that we need community to help us see how we contribute sometimes. Because on our own, Star Wars makes a lot of sense, the Star Wars world. It is amazing in my own mind what I can justify as right. I mean, it's incredible in my own mind what I can make perfect sense out of. And one of the beautiful parts of living in community is when some people look at you who love you going, I don't know that it's all the blame over there. You might have, you know, when you responded to your wife that way, that may not have been the most loving and helpful way that you could have responded. And you're like, really? And like, yes, yes. It felt made everyone else feel awkward when that happened, right? <laughs> Those are things that we need to live out in community. One of the reasons we need other people to help us and go, yeah, these are flat side. This is ways you react. But we need to be people in any conflict where there's not peace who are looking and saying, Lord, how am I contributing to this? How am I a part of what's going on? How can you help me to see what it is that I might be doing that's not faithful to how you've called me to live? And then what does it mean to not just kind of go, okay, I, I see that and I'll sweep it under the carpet and I'll hope to learn. But what does it actually mean to go and ask for forgiveness? I had someone come to me recently who is working the 12-step program through AA here. And they wanted to talk to me because they wanted prayers because they were having to work steps eight and nine in the program. 
And steps eight and nine, if you've ever worked a 12-step program or you know folks who have, steps eight and nine are where you make a, a list, an inventory of the people whom you have harmed or hurt. And then step nine is where you go and ask them for forgiveness. And this person had done that. He made a list and then he was gonna have to go and ask for forgiveness. And he wanted to pray because one of the people that he was going to be uh, needing to reconcile with and ask for forgiveness was a sibling, his brother. And he said, you know, I, I need to do this and I just, I don't know that it's right. And the fact is that while I did some stuff wrong, he also did a lot of stuff that was wrong. But, the, but we kind of moved past it and it's years later. And do we really need to go drudge this up? And do we really need to kind of, because we're okay now. And we just prayed that he would have the ability and the insight to actually do that. And it takes an amazing amount of courage years afterwards when things are sort of okay again and everyone sort of moved on to actually enter back into a situation and say, I need to reconcile. I need to ask your forgiveness. Not for everything that happened, but for some of the stuff that went on. And I talked to him a week later and it was amazing. And the exact words he used is, he goes, it was the hardest lunch I've ever had. He goes, I don't think I've ever been more nervous entering into a lunch conversation. And it was hard and it was intense and it was real on both sides. But I actually think for the first time I have peace with our relationship. Because he began by asking the question, how have I contributed to this? Not just how everybody else is to blame, not just how my siblings to blame. And started by saying, I need to ask for your forgiveness. We must be people who do that. What would that look like for you today and this week to take that call seriously? Because that is setting things that are broken right again. Or it's at least attempting to. It's making things that are unjust just again when we go and seek to reconcile in those kind of ways. And all of us are called to do that at different times of our life. But while we need to be people who ask for forgiveness, we also, secondly, if we are to find this sort of peace through just and right relationships, that we need to be people who also are willing to forgive. And that is some of the most difficult work that any of us have to do. When the Bible talks about forgiveness and how we're called to forgive, it often uses economic terms. What it says is if somebody hurts me, if someone injures me, if someone you know, says something about me, in essence, in an economic term, they now are in debt to me. They owe me something, right? They owe me something because they've hurt me or they've wronged me in some kind of way. And forgiveness, biblically, is about literally an economic term saying that debt is canceled. It no longer exists. That even if someone then comes and says, well, I'd like to try to repay it, you're like, no, no, it's gone. It's not here anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that you just sort of naively walk back into situations where maybe you've been hurt before. But the fact is, is that forgiveness, as difficult as it can be from places of abuse or hurt or neglect or being talked about or being passed over, we have all kinds of hurt that exists in our life. But forgiveness is you and I making the choice to move towards freedom in our own lives. It's not about whether someone deserves to be forgiven. And it's not even about whether they ask for it. Because see, until we forgive, we are still at some level living under the hurt that someone has done to us. If we're angry about it or we're smoldering about it or we're sad about it, and all those feelings are real, the longer that that is our dominant narrative in life, we're, we're actually allowing it to continue to shape and mold us in different ways. And forgiveness is in many ways about looking and going, I choose this. 
I choose this because I need this relationship to be right. And so I will write it. I will write it in my own mind, in my own heart. This debt is white clean. Now again, I may not walk back into the situation naively. It's not about being naive. But this debt is canceled out so that I have freedom. One of my favorite stories that I've read recently, and some of you have probably read it, and the movie did not work for it, is the book Unbroken. Unbroken is an amazing story about a man named Louis Zamperini. And very, very quickly, Louis Zamperini was an Olympic athlete who ran in the Olympics of 1936. And as he was running, uh, he ran there in Nazi Germany, and then World War II started. And Zamperini was on a flight. Uh, He was working on a bomber plane, and it was flying one day in the Pacific Ocean. In 1943, his flight crashed into the ocean. Eight of the 11 crew members were killed on that flight, three of whom got into life rafts, and Zamperini and one other survived for 47 days out in the Pacific Ocean. But when they were rescued, they weren't picked up by uh, allies. They were picked up by the Japanese Navy. And after 47 days of just brutal conditions in the Pacific Ocean, they were placed into Japanese prisoner of war camps where they were and lived for over two years. And as happens in prisoner war camps all over this world, they received absolutely brutal treatment and torture. For over two years, this happened until the war ended and the prisoners were set free. And Zamperini, like the other prisoners, returned to the United States. And on the surface of it, they had survived and everything was good. And this is the part the movie missed. Everything was okay. Zamperini had been engaged before. He got married in 1946 to his fiancee. He had survived the war. He was looking at what his career would be. He was back in California, but he was still a prisoner of the pain, the very understandable, justifiable pain that he had experienced. And it started having all kinds of impacts on his life. It started having to do with the amount he was drinking. It had to do with how he was treating his wife. It had to do with anger that was just boiling up inside of him in all different kinds of ways because there was this like I said, very real and understandable pain that existed in his life. One day in 1949, he walked into, as he was invited to do by those who, some people who knew him as his marriage was about to fall apart, into a tent where a little-known young evangelist named Billy Graham was leading a crusade in Los Angeles. Zamperini came to the front and gave his life to Jesus. And in 1950, just a year later, had the most amazing experience of going back to Japan where many of his guards who had tormented him were still in prison. And he made the trip in order to go and to let them know that he had forgiven them. That he had forgiven them for what they had done. Not because they deserved it, not because they asked for it, but because it was part of the freedom. As Christians, you and I are called to the hard work of forgiveness because of the first thing we have to do, which is that we also have to ask for forgiveness. And if we are going to be people who ask God and ask others for forgiveness, then who are we not to forgive? Zamperini did that work, and it was a journey towards freedom for him. Now, some of you may be there saying, listen, you don't know what I've experienced. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what I've suffered through. You don't know what that is to hold that pain in my life. And you are right, I don't. And what I want you to hear is, I do not want to minimize your journey at all. But what I do want you to know is that the only way you will have freedom in your life 
is to be able to forgive those who have hurt you just as you ask others and God to forgive you. It is not a work of weakness. It is a work of great and incredible strength. It is at the heart of who Jesus is, the work of forgiving and reconciling. Friends, this candle burns, not in a feel-good, wishful way. It burns because Isaiah is saying that peace is real, and it will happen, and it will be established, not because we're people who will sweep a lot of stuff under the carpet and have a big smile on our face saying that we're okay and that it's all right and let's move forward, but Isaiah is saying that we will take places that are wrong and justice will come, and they will be made right and just again, that there will be places that are broken and they will be made right again. And that you and I are called to the work, the hard work, the wonderful work of working for peace. That we are called to work for peace. And part of that work will be seeking out places where we need to ask for forgiveness. What would that look for you this week? It's going to be about offering forgiveness as it's been given to you by God through Jesus for the things that have happened in your life. What would that look like for you this week? Not to just go, okay, it's okay, it's gone, but to look at that hurt and say, this debt is erased. It is gone, and I am moving forward with my life. It is on these things that peace will come in your heart, in your relationships, in your life, and in our world, but come, it will. Amen. So where do we begin? Where do we begin this journey of forgiveness, of reconciling, of seeking forgiveness and offering it? There is no better place than right here, right here at this table, where you are welcomed, all of you, no matter what your background is, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, this table is where all are welcome to become because Jesus is the host. It is a place where you can bring your pain and your hurt. It's a place where you can bring your guilt for what you've done wrong. And it is a place where you can experience love and acceptance and forgiveness to free you up to go and forgive those who have harmed you. This table is where we begin today. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would join us all in this feast, that we would experience you here, that we would come before you as broken people, broken people who have hurt others, broken people who have done wrong, broken people who have been broken by the incredible hurt that others have afflicted upon us. We approach this table as who we are. But Lord, we're going to meet you here. You who knows what it is like to be broken and you who extends forgiveness to all. May this table be a place of healing and reconciliation in our own hearts and lives that we might go out and live lives of forgiveness and freedom as we leave this place. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.